Strategies for getting kids to talk about math don't always come naturally to us, and that's why I'm so excited for this week's episode, where we talk to two of the authors of the new text, Activating Math Talk, 11 Purposeful Techniques for Your Elementary Students. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk Podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. Today's special guests on the Kids Math Talk podcast are Paula Stein and Kristen Malzen. And so I want to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so thankful for the NCTM community that has brought us together and for the 100 days of professional learning that they're providing, because otherwise, I don't know that we would have been connected. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Desiree, for inviting us. Uh, We're excited. Yeah, thank you. So here on the Kids Math Talk podcast, we're all about practical tips to engage students, to increase discourse, and to create positive mathematical identities. And you all had an extremely powerful webinar all about practical techniques that seem to evolve from the work that you all are doing with this project AIM. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this work and the guiding principles. Yeah, sure. So again, thank you for having us. Um, We started thinking about this work based on the amount of work that there has been in math about math tasks. And we know that tasks are so important and key for uh, engaging students in discourse and meaningful math conversations. At one point, it felt like tasks suffice. You know, you give kids a good task and then everybody will talk. And I think we were a little frustrated with that image because if you give a good task, yeah, you may get five kids to want to talk, but how are you going to make sure every kid can talk and will talk and will engage? So that's where the principles come from. Uh, First, we have this idea that students need to learn to talk. And so you have, as a teacher, you have to do um, some practices. And for that, we provide techniques that help kids learn to talk in the ways that we consider productive. Yeah, kids talk. But do they talk in the way we want them to talk in math? That's really not the natural way where you say, oh, yeah, I hear your argument. And now let me, you know, this is my idea That's not how kids talk, Uh, definitely not in the early grades. And I don't think even in fifth grade, it will come in that way if we didn't teach them. This is what we want a math conversation to look like. So we wanted to have techniques that teachers could use that would teach kids to talk in the ways that we think are productive in mathematics. So guiding principles. Uh, Techniques need to be readily available for teachers. You know, and teachers should have a a toolkit of such techniques that they can use in the classroom. They need to be easy. They need to be ready. You can use. That's our principle, number one. Number two is that techniques really help students learn to talk in very specific ways, and they need to learn to talk. 
And uh, our principle number three is that actually all students can learn to participate productively if they're given the opportunities to learn to participate. So those are the three guiding principles when we started this work now over 10 years ago. Wow. So I hear that theme of equity being pulled out in those guiding principles and just ensuring that all voices are heard and valued, which, you know, equity is such a large buzzword, but those guiding principles, that's the how. Instead of just having the face value concept, you're really like digging into how to make it happen. Exactly. And and I would say um, really thinking about each and every kid, right? I think that's how NCTM uh, is trying to reinforce that all means each and every kid. That's what we were thinking about. How are you going to provide them the opportunity so they can learn? So in the book, we also talk a lot about emergent, emergent multilingual uh, learners. And we talk about, we actually say that all kids are emergent math communicators in the early grades. Every single kid is learning to talk and is learning math vocabulary. So we should really think about every kid in the early grades as an emergent math communicator. But we also have in the classroom emergent multilingual learners who are uh, perhaps learning English. And so we we also provide uh, several principles on how to work with emergent multilinguals. Kristen, you want to say a little bit more about that? This is an area where... You have done some other work, but we, we tried to think in the book, in, in our work, along the equity uh, component, also bringing in uh, emergent multilinguals. Yeah, so um, as Paula said, um, we do provide particular scaffolds and supports with, with each of our techniques um, to help, in particular, emergent multilingual learners. And these are really based on three, um, three other guiding principles of effective instruction for emergent multilingual learners. Um, and one of those is to challenge students, making sure, as Paula started you know, talking about earlier, um, making sure that everybody has challenging high cognitive demand tasks. Right. So you don't want to um, lower that cognitive demand. So everybody um, needs these challenging tasks. The second idea is using um, multiple modes of communication. So, you know, having students communicate their ideas does not necessarily just have to be verbal um, or or written that students can also use um, pictures and diagrams and um, gesturing and and whatnot. And that really provides more access um, in particular for students that don't have the English language or maybe are still developing their mathematical language that they can use those different modes. And then the third one is promoting academic language. So allowing students to use some of their everyday language, but also then helping to develop their um, academic language as they are making sense of mathematical ideas. Um, So those are the three that we really try to um, incorporate into our techniques and into the work that we do with teachers. 
so the piece about you're saying developing as students are making sense, that's oftentimes not what we see happening in classrooms, especially if we have pre-made math vocabulary walls or we say like, this is going to be the vocabulary of the week, then it might be totally abstract for students. They don't have any uh, context to connect it with. So that is important to remember. And also that those multiple modes of communication, especially since so many of us are in the remote learning situation right now, and we're thinking about different ways to engage and to have the discourse. We often have a, such a narrow definition of discourse where we always think it has to be verbal, but thank you for reminding us that there are so many different ways to communicate. And pictures is going to be, I mean, pictures is huge. If you're online, you can draw, you can use like a Google drawing, or you can have some clip art even, or take a picture with your phone and upload it and take a picture. I was on a a walk earlier during my lunch break and I was, I took some pictures of some flowers for a possible, what do you notice? What do you wonder? Like, you know, how many, some subitizing activity and like a kid could do that and communicate their understanding. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Um, Desiree, I also want to add, you know, kids can use their own, um, own ways of saying informal language, their first language, all of that is very important in this making sense part. And at the same time, as they're making sense, we do want to connect it to uh, academic vocabulary so that they learn to develop that vocabulary. That, that, is a, that is a purposeful teaching action, right? So I think sometimes when we say, oh, the kids should, we we need to let the kids use different modes of communication, different language. Some people hear, oh, then we don't teach academic language. That's also not what we are saying, because you also have to help them connect and develop that language. So it is this back and forth as you are making meaning, we provide you more vocabulary to help you express that meaning uh, is really important. And you're getting to the math practices, just there's not a linear progression is what I kind of hear you saying. It's this, it's messy, but that's the only, that's learning is messy. That's the only way to really be effective. So when we're thinking about discourse in the math classroom, During your webinar, you all ask the audience what features uh, they consider most important. And then after some conversation, you talked about four different types of discourse. So not what we, not necessarily what we talked about earlier, having pictures versus verbal, but you talked about four different types, correcting discourse, eliciting discourse, probing discourse, and responsive discourse. And um, can you just talk a little bit about those four types? Yeah, so in, in, in this particular case, when we are saying this course, we are really looking at the overall of the classroom interactions and how teachers and stu- te- the teacher and the students are interacting with each other uh, throughout the lesson. So this is this course with a bigger idea of you know, what's happening in the lesson, what are the patterns, um, and in which ways are kids uh, um, 
interacting. And all right, so we use a definition of this course in the book that is patterned ways of using questioning, explaining, listening, and different modes of communication in the classroom to uh, promote conceptual understanding and math for our learners. But I wanted to emphasize the pattern part. You know, are these ways in which we engage kids and uh, have them talk that become what we do and how we interact and the norms. And kids quickly learn, you know, should I raise my hand, not raise my hand? Uh, do I need to worry about this? Or can I just sit here and not pay attention? Or, you know, am I going to be expected to explain something or not? So they learn these patterns. Kids are very good at noticing these patterns. When we say this course, in, in this case of the four types, are four different patterns in which kids and teachers engage uh, that are repeated over time. So correcting this course has long been known uh, by the academic community. It's called IRE sometimes, invest, um, Initiate, Respond, Evaluate. And the teacher basically is correcting what students say. So correcting this course is when the teacher is basically listening for right or wrong answers. And the goal is mainly to fix it. So everybody have access to the right answer. So the teacher asks a question, Students answer, teacher says, yes, right, no, wrong, next one, and it goes like that. So that's one pattern. Uh, that pattern actually is good if you are trying to work on if kids have definitions or facts. But if you are really focusing on understanding, that pattern of this course is not promoting understanding uh, in the way we would like kids to make sense of mathematics. That's so that's correcting. Then eliciting, I think it's something we have seen a lot in the classroom, um, particularly when we started saying, you know, you've got to engage the kids in conversation. You have to bring them in and encourage them to talk. And many times that goes without pushing for mathematical accuracy. So now everybody's talking, but I'm not really quite pushing them. Many times I think teachers do that because you want your kids to feel welcome, you know, to participate. And so we call that eliciting the scores. You elicit a lot of ideas into the conversation, but as a teacher, you may not, not act on these ideas. And again, it's really powerful if you have somebody who's not participating, who is shy, who would completely draw in if you were to say something or correct or feel insecure. So eliciting the scores opens up the conversation, but it doesn't push for mathematical learning or accuracy because you can stay at a very superficial level. So then comes probing the scores, which is when the teacher starts probing. So asking questions from students, making sure we are uh, discussing mathematical connections or mathematical understandings, uh, asking why, asking how, you know, really pushing for understanding the mathematics. So the kids are not only sharing, but they are also being pushed for a more mathematical depth. And then the last one, which is responsive discourse, 
has everything that I've said so far. So it has all the features of eliciting and probing. And on top of that, the kids know they are also responsible for the discourse. So now it's not just the teacher probing, the teacher asking questions, the teacher telling students, the teacher, you know, every time a student says something, the teacher responds, but kids are talking to each other. So when one student proposes a particular solution, the teacher doesn't need to go, great, who wants to ask a question? Because now kids know they are asking questions. So another student may ask questions and they respond. And so it moves away a little from that pattern that is student, teacher, student, another student, teacher, another student, teacher, another student, teacher, uh, which is typical of all three prior uh, types of discourse. But now you have the teacher says something, students are talking to each other. Somebody answers, somebody asks, another question comes and go back to that answer. And then the teacher asks something else. So that's the responsive discourse is when kids understand they are responsible for the conversation as much as the teacher is. And that sounds like uh, when you have the responsive discourse, you ha- you've built a really rich and inviting classroom community and it's not going to happen overnight (laughs) by any means. And I guess just overall what you were talking about reminded me of principles to actions and some of those like probing questions. So thinking about your goals ahead of time as the teacher before you go into a lesson so you can see like which level of discourse you're really going to get into uh, and the teacher yeah, we, may may want to have different ones for different purposes at different times right so there is a time for practicing something that you've been working on and maybe you're interested in accuracy at that point it makes sense and you may want to engage in correcting the scores you probably wouldn't start something with that kind of discourse um so the teacher may use different types of different moments for different purposes. What we try to say in the book uh, is that if your goal is for kids to develop conceptual understanding and procedural fluency, then you want to be on the probing responsive side. The other side serves other purposes, but it's not really going to foster conceptual understanding and the kind of procedural fluency with flexibility that we want to see uh, kids develop. And sorry, Kristen, I, I interrupted you. No, not at all. I think we were just both chiming in. Um, one thing, Desiree, when you mentioned thinking about goals, I'm glad you brought that up because um, one thing that we talk about in the professional development that we've um, developed over these years with our teachers is that it's important, of course, to think about your content goal, but we also talk about thinking about your discourse goal, which is exactly, I think, what what Paola is talking about when we think about these different types of discourse, um, you know, and that as you are planning your lesson, you really have to focus on, um, yes, what do we want the students to come away with understanding about, about, about the mathematics, but also what kinds of skills do we want to, you know, teach them as far as how they are participating in, in discussions, um, the act of listening and, you know, being able to ask those probing questions of each other, um, 
and, and explaining and providing justifications and stuff. And so those, I think, are really important to think about as well. Yeah, there's been intensive learning and planning happening every day and uh, thinking about how to do some of those pieces in the virtual environment, like with the discussion board or um, just having um, different icons to say, okay, now this is like a little ear to say this is where you're going to listen and like a a pencil, like this is where I'd like for you to respond or like a, a microphone to say, like, let's try out um, using this, using the sentence stem. So like everything is a step-by-step process and you like piece by piece, you're adding on to your goals toward that responsive discourse. Exactly. Uh, so we're thinking about like all these practical and purposeful ways of doing things. And uh, as a parent, you know, you watch your child develop and grow. And, you know, if your child is speaking to you, then you might be under the assumption that they can just automatically talk about math. But you spoke earlier about how all children are emergent math communicators. So what's one piece of advice that you have for parents as they're working with their child with mathematics? Be curious. <laughs> That's When a child says something to you about mathematics, be curious. What, how, how did you think about that? Uh, what, what was in your mind as you were answering this question or when you saw something? Or, and so really try to get to where you're child is coming from and don't necessarily assume it, the, the child is thinking like you are or that the child did something because they understood it and know exactly how to do it or the other way they have a mistake because they have no idea so really be curious sometimes uh, children say fascinating things so listen Try to see where they're coming from. Um, don't take it for granted that you know what they were thinking when it comes to a math problem, whether they're right or they're wrong. You know, ask them, how did you think about that? And have them talk to you. I think what I was going earlier is, and even when there are mistakes, try to understand why would they be doing that mistake? What might they be thinking? Because sometimes it just makes sense to them. It's not that they were being careless or, you know, not were not interested. Sometimes the mistake just made sense to them. So you ha- you've got to be curious. That simple question or just like, oh, how did you get that? Or like that could yeah. open up a whole new world. Yeah. I'm reading a few different books about online teaching right now and they're listening to them on audiobooks and or on audible and one of the books was talking about how discussion boards and chats allow you as the teacher so it could be you as the parent um in this case like just it allows you to enter the mind of the child and to see the beauty because we you know, us who are really passionate about mathematics talk about how mathematics is beautiful and math, the patterns are everywhere and in nature and just there's inherent beauty, but there's also that beauty inside your mind and pulling that out. The only way to see that is for us to start to talk about it and to, to write down and, and um, seeing that you just get a whole new perspective 
of how somebody thinks and views the world. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I just thought another thing for parents too. And um, if, if there is something you don't quite get, ask the teacher. <laughs> you know, teachers are doing things slightly different. So give them credit for what they're doing. And if it's different from what you used to do, go ask them why. Because there might be a really good reason why we are doing it differently now. And so, or if you get to something you can't help your kid because you don't know how to do it, ask the teacher, how, do, how can I best help my kid here? Because I don't know how to do this. And uh, establish that relationship. I think it's also really important. And I think now more than ever, because kids are spending a lot more time with their parents (laughs) and uh you know that relationship with the teacher especially in the early i'm talking k-5 right Uh, especially in the early grades we are gonna have to partner we really are or it's gonna be a clash of oh well i know the teacher says this the parent says that and it, it happens already in the classroom but i think we have ways to deal with it when we are in the classroom and we are seeing each other and parents and teachers are interacting. But now without that interaction, you've got to make it happen pers- purposefully so you can partner with your, with your kids' uh, teachers. And I think teachers are amazing. They are trying to do the best they can and they want to partner. They know parents are important. So, Yeah, teachers are doing the impossible right now. And yeah, the, the more we work together, the better it is for everybody and for children, which is exactly. ultimately why we're here. That is why we are here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Title of the book is Activating Math Talk, 11 Purposeful Techniques for Your Elementary Students. And in the book, we have the first few chapters are really about conversations about discourse in general, some general ideas about language learners. It's really all these frameworks for you to think about the classroom because we think you need that for the techniques to make sense because technique for technique's sake doesn't really uh, achieve any of your goals. And so we laid out the framework and then we provide 11 techniques that are ready to be used and we also share vignettes of teachers um, who use those techniques in their classrooms. So these are teachers who have worked with us for many years. And so they, we write with them uh, the vignettes about their experiences, both about what worked and sometimes what they would do differently uh, in the classroom. Uh, mostly to remind everybody these are not meant to be perfect classes, you know. Uh, instruction happens every day with the good, the bad, and, you know, the unexpected. So uh, the vignettes are really true stories and uh, teachers' reflections. And those will be so appreciated because it is, that is real life. And acknowledging that things don't always go perfectly is so important. Yep. We're taking a quick pause here to say that you can find the book Activating Math Talk on corwin.com. And if you are enjoying this episode, please leave a review so others can find this podcast. 
Now let's get back to the interview. And one more thing I want to say about the book is that we also wanted this book to really be useful for schools or districts that may want to do professional learning communities or some professional development um, on their own. And so there are tools within the book that are very practical. So moments where we ask the readers to pause and think about certain situations and how um, they can connect some of the techniques that we talk about to their own practice. And we have them, you know, give them some ideas of, you know, what things that they could do to go back in their classroom and try it and some discussion questions at the end of each chapter that are called Discuss with Colleagues. And so it really is meant to promote more at a school level some you know, so professional learning opportunities uh, for teachers to come together and really think more critically about, about the ideas in the book and how they can implement them with their students in their classrooms. I could even see that being a part of a, like a virtual coaching community, too. Um, yeah. Or, or a PLC or a, any kind of community, I think, yes, we, we wanted it to have opportunities for that. So we are also in the process of finishing a, a PD that uh, districts could participate in eventually. And so the idea that we have is that the book is kind of the textbook for the PD and a, a district that is interested we will be able to prepare a coach or a facilitator or somebody from the district uh, to use the professional development that the district uh, will get all the learning management system from us and be able to use it uh, in the district and uh, just offer the professional development themselves. We have the, the professional development, the learning management system already, and now we are finalizing the facilitator preparation part. So all of this can happen fully online, uh, or hopefully if we are uh, together, it can happen through some face-to-face and some online asynchronous uh, materials. But again, it it will be ready for use next summer where a district can say, I would like to do this professional development. We'll train somebody in the district And that person will get all the materials and be able to do it. That's going to be a really fabulous resource. Yeah, thank you. We we hope so. We hope so. (laughs) We hope so. So in in this book and your work, you have all these different techniques. And tell us about one of those. So I've been thinking about from the strategies that we have right now, what would it take for a teacher who is engaged in online learning at this moment? So, and, and I've been trying to think about what would each of these strategies look if now I'm teaching online? I believe bat lines can continue to happen. In fact, bat lines can be a lot of fun. So let me tell you what bat line is first. And, and I believe teachers can take most of our techniques and begin to adapt them. Uh, the book was not written with COVID in mind. So, you know, we are all adapting. Yeah. But bad lines is a technique that um, it's used a lot in literacy for kids to make sense of text. And what happens is, as you are reading, you stop and ask, wow, what do I think is going to happen next? And at that practice of thinking what happens next 
you know, really helps you make sense of what's happened up to now and what are the possibilities. So we adapted that techniques to, to use in math for problem, uh, for story problem and problem solving. And so as the teacher is presenting a story problem, the teacher stops, you know, reads perhaps a, a sentence or two sentences at a point where it makes sense. And you say, where do you think it's going to happen next? And then the students start uh, providing their bets. That's why it's called mathematical bat lines. And from there, you keep reading and the kids can reevaluate their bets. They can change it. And so the kids get very excited because it's kind of fun. Um, They are also making sense of the story to be able to provide a bet of what may come next. And it really opens a window for the teacher to be seeing what the kids are paying attention to, which kids might be connecting to the math parts of the story, which kids might be focusing on contextual features that perhaps are not as relevant for the math discussion. And so it opens a lot of opportunities for teachers to make sense of what their kids are thinking as they're making sense. So where I was going to go earlier, and this could work in second grade, Uh, late first grade but second grade kids could actually put bats on the chat you know and now you would have a lot of kids batting instead of in the classroom where you may get one or two bats uh it could actually be fun to see a collection of bats in the chat or a discussion space um and then the teacher can also have the teacher has a better opportunity of choose which bat before discussing it, because when you pick somebody who raised their hands, you don't know what the bat is going to be and where it will take you. But if kids wrote their bats, now you're like, oh, two interesting bats. I'm going to pick on these two. <laughs> Fascinating. I remember reading the article in the um, Teaching Children Mathematics about the mathematical bat lines, and I never got a chance to actually use that with my students while I was in the classroom but it's such an exciting idea. And a few episodes ago on the podcast, we were talking about the different types of engagement. And I view this as connecting to cognitive engagement and emotional engagement. And it just, like like you were saying, just gets kids so excited. And I wonder if um, for kindergarten, they, you know, they wouldn't be able to type type in the chat necessarily. What would you all say about forced choice in that situation? Um, So for me, there is a move uh, that people use a lot called agree or disagree. Mm. Uh, And that seems a little bit on agree or disagree with the teacher's bat, which I think it's very valuable as well. Um, It's probably different than you listening to the kids' bats. And oftentimes the bats are even before you know, you get to the part of the mathematical question. So you may stop way before where the numbers are still not there uh, and the kids have to start saying, oh, I think more, and I, that would be the increase, right? I think, it, but in context, right? Right. Um, there are, we use this problem for some other stuff. There are seven bees, you know, in the hive. What well, may happen, you know, and then you can talk, well, Bees can leave, more bees can come in. And that is part of the bat. Uh, that's a little before the bat of, well, is it increasing or decreasing? That helps them also understand the context from a mathematical perspective. 
Yeah, that makes sense. This technique sounds like an excellent point for formative assessment and just to just to have some observation points that could eventually lead to an interview if you have some breakout groups. Mm-hmm. I, I think you can still do it um, if the kids are using the microphone. You can still pick a child to provide the bat and then allow that child to offer the bat. Uh, the reason why I was thinking about the chat is that the chat would allow everybody to bat yeah right and when yeah. we are talking we really pick one or two okay but you can still use it with the mic and hopefully if a kid is like camera just camera shy whatever and they have their camera off but then they have all these engaging tasks and you know hopefully that will prompt them to say like oh you know I do want to be seen so um the turnaround will happen but Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, Yeah, so we have created this video cast um, and is a set of colleagues here who we all work in elementary math education. We were thinking about caregivers and uh, having to think about math with kids. So it's called Unpacking K-5 Math for Caregivers. And it's here on the NC State website. And we just pose a question to ourselves and we start talking about it. And it's a discussion among us. They last about 10 to 15 minutes each. So we are trying to support caregivers thinking about what they can do with their kids. And that idea of being curious about the kids comes from those conversations. Okay. Because, yes, we're always looking for more resources for parents. So I will link that in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you both for such a, an enriching and valuable conversation. And K-5 kids and K-2 kids especially so often get um, left out when we're thinking about this discourse piece. We tend to go toward bigger kids and it's just as important for all learners. So thank you for your work and for your dedication and for your time on the Kids Math Talk podcast. Thank Thank you, Desiree. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And I look forward to other opportunities. Maybe we can partner in the future. I would love that. Yeah, Yeah. we would too. (laughs) If you are a member of NCTM, be sure to check out the webinar that's mentioned in this episode that was a part of the 100 Days of Professional Learning. It's definitely worth your time. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at KidsMathTalk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast, for previous episodes of this podcast. And join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk podcast.